0: Hey, good afternoon everybody. Matt Sloan, uh, CEO of Skyfire here, and we also have Ben Kroll, our uh, fabulous Chief Operating Officer here as well, and welcome back to Skyfire Live. We are happy to have you guys here today and happy to talk to uh, talk to some people other than the people we're quarantined with. So good to see you again, Ben. How's it going? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, how's it going in Atlanta? Good. We're here at Skyfire HQ, and uh, as everybody knows, our governor opened the statewide open, so now I can go get a tattoo and go bowling and get my hair cut and eat at restaurants and all that, you go. all that other fun stuff. So uh, today we are going to uh, talk about a topic that we have been asked about pretty much nonstop for the last six years that we've been doing this. Uh, and that is, uh, well, not really, because 107 didn't exist back then, but you get the point. Uh, Part 107 versus COA and the benefits uh, of both uh, four-year department's program and why you would want to do one versus the other, or even both. So um, I think everybody's sort of familiar with Part One Hundred Seven, so we'll talk about that here real briefly. But um, Ben, you want to tell us a little bit about what the COA is all about and and what that actually means, what it even stands for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think it's it's important to point out. So we throw around we throw around a lot of terms, right? Like COA and um, POA and all these things. And and I th- I just want to make the uh, important distinction that when we're talking about um, 107 versus COA, what we're really talking about is civil aircraft operations versus public aircraft operations. So obviously, you know, we work a lot within public safety. So uh, that's the question that's important. that comes up is, does, uh, should I be a public aircraft operator or a civil aircraft operator uh, or both? So when we're looking at, when we're talking about uh, public aircraft operations, um, really what we're talking about, is um, and and this is something I've actually been talking to the FAA a lot about this recently, and they've really come full circle on this. You know, I think um, I think a few years ago, uh, the FAA was really uh, pushing a lot of agencies like go the public route, become a public aircraft operator, um, and I think that's changed a little bit. I think the the FAA looks at it now, and and I would tend to agree with this that a lot of agencies um, can can really uh, do most of their missions under Part One Hundred Seven. Um, But let's just talk for a minute about um, what uh, part or I'm sorry, what public aircraft operations is uh, under a COA, which would be a certificate of authorization. So if you're operating under public aircraft operations, uh, you get a certificate of authorization, which is granted to you uh, by the FAA. And so I'm just going to, Matt, am I able to share my screen here?
0: Uh, I can make that happen for you. Okay. I'm going to make you the host. Go for it.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: And just pull something
1: up so everybody can see here. And you know, as we as we talk about this, um, some of this can be very confusing. And we try to be very succinct in how we uh, talk about this and approach this and explain it. And still, sometimes it can be uh, very confusing. So, um, if there's something that uh, you don't understand, uh, obviously, please feel free to reach out. Or I think you can put things in the comments here, and, and we can read them. So
0: yeah and i'm keeping an eye on the comments too so uh if you guys have I'll questions go. please jump in and ask we cannot see your screen i don't know if we're supposed to be able to
1: no i don't know what's going on here uh let me try this
0: uh let's see the uh, fun of live television or whatever this yeah, is yeah <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah you know what's happened here is
0: i updated my operating system oh if you um, want to send it to me i can pull it up too
1: yeah you know what i'm just gonna send this to you here Stand by. While I do this, actually, Matt, and we'll we'll. How about this? How about we come back to um, the the public aircraft side? Can you just talk about civil aircraft operations and kind of maybe just talk about Part One Hundred Seven real quick and what that means?
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. So you know, I think you know, Part One Hundred Seven, as you guys, a lot of you are familiar with uh, the. Um, you know, civil framework if we're, you're operating as a commercial entity. Um, it's what we do at Skyfire. So we fly under part 107 because we're not a public agency. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot, the uh, the sort of the golden rules, uh, you know, still apply. Um, you know, we're, we're gonna be flying under 400 feet above ground level. Um, we're gonna be flying within line of sight. We're gonna be flying daytime only, and we're gonna be flying in uncontrolled or class G airspace. And so um, those are kind of the, the tenants, um, you know, it's the same tenants that you'll see Uh, under some of the COAs as well too. Um, But you know, those are sort of the basics. Um, I think the big difference between part 107 and what Ben's gonna talk about on the public operator side is that um, under part 107, you basically start with no permissions and build from there with waivers versus under the COA that you get kind of all that stuff um, from the beginning. So um, things like flying in controlled airspace, those are waivers that you have to get, some easier than others. Um, Flying at night, you need a waiver for that. Flying over people, you need a waiver for that. Um, all the rest of that, uh, all of that stuff, um, uh, comes, um, you know, with the, uh, with the COA, depending on what type of COA you get, then we're going to talk about that here, uh, in a minute. So, um, as soon as we get this going here, so you I just sent that? that to you. Yeah, you should have that now. Okay. Awesome. You send it over email. I take it. Yeah. Naturally, it's taking some time to get over here. Sure.
1: So, and we'll back that up. So, while Mel, while Matt's getting getting that set up, um, if we go back to all the way back to 2016, uh, there really wasn't a framework for um, uh, people to fly commercially. There was there was an exemption process that you could go through, and we're we're talking about. Uh, using drones right now. So that's what the FAA came up with with Part 107. And that was August of 2016. And as if we talk about this, you know, we're we're kind of, you know, have a focus on on public safety here. A public safety agency um, can absolutely use 107 to have their pilots fly missions for them. And that's something that as a um, as a certificated Part 107 holder, uh, you're flying under your your license. So Let's say you're a firefighter or you're a police officer and you're driving a police car or a fire truck. It's actually very similar to that you're operating uh, under your own uh, license, essentially. So um, So 107 created. So when you go in and you take your part 107 license, it allows you to fly uh, commercially, which means you can fly for your agency. And so like Matt was saying, when you walk out with your certificate in hand, once you pass the part 107 test uh, you're limited to certain things. You're limited to uncontrolled airspace. You're limited to 400 feet above the ground, uh, 100 miles per hour or 87 knots. Uh, all these things, uh, limited to line of sight, daytime only. Um, so initially it's a, a little bit limited um, as far as you know what you can do with it. Like Matt said, you have to go apply for waivers to be able to operate in controlled airspace and, and all these other things. So, um, So that's really the civil side and kind of how that came about. Uh, public aircraft operations, or operating under a certificate of authorization, has actually existed for uh, quite some time. And where that came from are uh, congressional statutes. And so these congressional statutes um, sort of outline they 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 wanted Congress wanted a way for um, uh, government uh, municipalities and agencies to be able to operate a little bit um, with a little bit more of their own authority. I guess this is probably a good way to say it. So. They created these statutes, and since they created them, the FAA has sort of become kind of the, the kind of the gatekeeper of these statutes, and and they've had to interpret kind of what uh, what Congress kind of meant uh, as far as these statutes. And so, one of the things that they uh, interpreted that to mean was that the if you were going to fly as a public aircraft operator, uh, you have to your mission has to meet a governmental function. And before we even get into governmental function, it's important to point out. That the big difference between uh, flying a part 107 civilly and uh, as a public aircraft operator is that the public aircraft operators uh, can actually certify themselves in regards to uh, pilot certification, training, maintenance, uh, aircraft certification, all of these things. So it gave them a little bit more uh, leeway to do all this stuff. However, the flip side of that is it puts way more responsibility on the agency to make sure that they're doing all of these things correctly. And so when you're granted a COA, essentially the COA says, here's how you're going to operate inside the national airspace system. But when it comes to training, maintenance, aircraft certification, those things are all up to the agency. And so when we talked about part 107 being an individual certificate, the COA is actually granted to the agency itself. So that's a really big distinction.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things um, that uh, you know really we talk about a lot. There's some people who have concerns about people jumping in sort of too quickly into the COA route because you have to sort of understand that that's what your your department is taking on. Um, One of the things we've spoken to the FAA a lot about is uh, the the actual process for getting a COA, which involves um, starting with this public declaration letter. And the public declaration letter actually uh, certifies to the FAA that you are, in fact, a public agency. And that letter has to come from your city or county attorney. And we said to the FA, you know, we, can you explain a little bit more about why it has to come from the attorney? Like, what's the purpose behind that? And uh, the purpose um, that, you know, they sort of uh, let us in on was the fact that they're sort of forcing you to have that conversation with your legal department. Um, and so, you know, that sort of makes you uh, accountable to them to say, um, you know, hey, here's what we want to do. Here's what this is actually going to mean um, for us. and. Uh, you know, this is the kind of liability that we're taking on before you actually jump right into that. So um, that's kind of the purpose of you know, this process. My point is that um, there's a lot of uh, you know, logistics involved, a lot of liability that you're taking on as a department and they wanted to make sure that you guys, uh, you know, as departments sort of understood what you were taking on before you actually got into it.
1: Yeah, because I, I think what we saw, Matt, um, at least like four or five years ago when, when agency, because when we talk about the public aircraft uh, operator, uh, statutes. That's something that's been around for a long time that people have used for like helicopters and those kinds of things. So when it first started to show up um, in drone programs, uh, I think that was a mistake that, that some agencies make. They look at it and go, oh, I can self certify. Awesome. Then I don't have to go through this 107. I don't have to take these tests and we'll just go fly. Um, but it's actually the opposite. What, what's happening there is way, as you said, way more responsibility is being put on the agency to make sure that they are operating um, correctly and with the right training. Um, but it does give them a little bit more leeway to operate um, kind of how they want to and what makes sense for that agency. So um, so there's some kind of some nuanced stuff there, uh, but it's really important that agencies understand uh, how important uh, that responsibility is and how different that is from from part 107.
0: Yeah, and I've got the uh, graphic here now, Ben, so I can share this with everybody. Oh, perfect. Okay. Let's take a look at that.
1: So if you are a uh, public aircraft operator um, or to be able to fly as a public aircraft, there's basically four things, like four really important things. Um, one is, as Matt said, you have to be a political subdivision of the United States government, a state or US territory government, the District of Columbia, or an Indian tribal government listed in the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. So this means if you're a nonprofit, you cannot act as a public aircraft operator. It means if you're a volunteer, you probably it's there is a pathway. If you're a volunteer agency, um, it's very difficult to do, Um, and again, there's kind of more of a process involved with that. But um, you must be a political subdivision of a uh, state or U.S. government or city, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, You must own or operate the unmanned aircraft or have an exclusive lease on it for more than 90 days. So that's just uh, the agency must own it uh, before you can actually operate. Fly missions that meet the statutory criteria of a governmental function. So this one's really, really important. Um, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier and now we'll get into it here. So, and this is a flight by flight basis. This means that every mission you fly, every flight that you make must meet a governmental function and a governmental function is been defined as an activity undertaken by a government such as national defense, intelligence missions, firefighting, search and rescue, law enforcement, um, aeronautical resource research or biological or geological resource management. Now, that's a very narrow scope. And uh, there's a lot of agencies out there that, uh, like, if you are a public works department, uh, it's not really included in here. You know, your uh, land management uh, for a, a government agency, that's also not included in here. So um, the, the way to think about it, I think the best way to explain this, in the way that we've been explaining it for some time, is to say that if you wanna operate as a public aircraft operator, um, your governmental function uh, must be something that only the government can do. So if you could hire somebody to do that job, you cannot operate that mission as a public aircraft operator. So where this comes into play is where we see agencies who say a fire department, obviously if there's a fire, they're operating as a public aircraft operator and they wanna use the drone to get uh, you know, better eyes on that fire, That is something that's included in here. And let's say the fire is done, they go back, the next day they're like, oh, we have this new station house that we wanna get uh, video from. Um, They put the drone up. That's not considered a a governmental function because you could essentially hire somebody to do that under part 107. So the the best way to think about it is kind of in those terms. Uh, If only the government, if only your governmental function can do that um that and that that one's really important there uh we see a lot of agencies who've who've kind of made this mistake before of uh not really totally understanding this part of it but but uh, it is a very narrow scope there for what is a governmental function
0: Uh, and i I should add too that there's not exactly a list of you know what exactly those functions are so you know in, in some ways you're it, there's a guideline, but it's not written down anywhere. Like, yes, this qualifies, that qualifies, this qualifies. It's the yeah, like reaction.
1: mission by mission, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And,
0: yeah. And so, and every time you do one of those flights, you yeah. have to ask yourself, does this meet that criteria? Um, it's not a like, yeah, most of the time we meet that criteria, so it's COA. It's every single time you fly, do exactly. I meet the criteria, and is this a COA flight? Um, so let's get to the last one, and then let's come back to that um, that you know governmental function then because there's a lot more to unpack there. So uh, let me go back here real quick. So there's your, uh, your last. Yeah, and that,
1: that, uh, that, that one's pretty simple. Um, you cannot fly for commercial purposes or receive compensation for your flight operations if you're acting um, as a uh, public aircraft operator on that mission.
0: Right, and so um, that, that's also of interest too. So let's, let's kind of dig into those last two. Um, operating for compensation or hire has become a really interesting topic of conversation with FEMA. Um, because one of the, in the conversations we've had with them, you know, they're actually required to reimburse your department for certain functions during a federally declared disaster. But if they're reimbursing you, um, then they're in a sense paying you for your work and that can't be done under a Um, So where a lot of departments were not getting Part Seven certified, um, that's a, a situation where you're actually doing uh public aircraft operations, but you can't do it under a COA. So this gets into the weeds. Like if you know, this is one of those situations where uh if you have a specific question about your particular use case, um, you know, talk to us offline because uh it, it's 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 pretty complex to get into all the nuances of it. Oh you're on mute, Ben. Thanks. <laughs> we're killing it with the technology. Yeah we're just <laughs> <laughs> um
1: Let's talk for a minute about, like, what, you know, uh, do you want to talk for a minute about what does it take to get a Part 107?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll talk about
1: kind of the process of getting a COA and kind of what that means.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So to actually get a Part 107, um, the only requirement is that you need to go take the Part 107 test. Um, You actually file uh, through the um, uh, airman management system called IACRA. Um, So that's where your application is processed through, and inherent in that is a background check as well. Um, so there are certain criteria that you have to meet about you know, the, the age requirement and you have to be, a, a, I believe, a U.S. citizen, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, to, to go and take the Part 1 7. Then all you have to actually do to satisfy the requirement is go take the test. Um, the test is, uh, it's a 60-question test. You have to get at least a 70% on it, um, and it's valid for two years. Um, one of the interesting things that we're, we're sort of circling in on here in, in the era of coronavirus is that, people who took their um, last test two years ago are now starting to need to take the test again, and a lot of the testing centers are closed. So the FAA actually uh, released what's called the SFAR, the Special Federal Aviation uh, Regulation, um, to give these folks relief. So if you, um, and this is really important information here, so just to highlight it for everybody, if you are expiring um, in the next couple of months, there is actually a process for doing an online renewal that's valid for six more months. So essentially getting a six month extension on having to go take the test, you're still gonna to have to go take the test later, but at least for now you can, you can stay current. Um, so you basically, you know, you take it once, take it again every two years, 60 questions the first time and every recurrent test after that is 40 questions. Um, so pretty, pretty straightforward process. Um, as I said, it doesn't really come with the permissions to do anything other than daytime flying in uncontrolled airspace. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about waivers in a, probably a whole different, uh, webinar, but, um, it, you know, there is a process for getting waivers to fly in controlled airspace and at night and over people and all those kinds of things. So we'll, we'll talk about that at another point. Um, so that's, that's the sort of 107 in a nutshell. Um, you actually get a physical card, uh, like a pilot's license that says SUAS on it. Um, and you carry that around with you and, uh, and, and you're an airman now. Um, cool. Uh, so let's talk just for
1: a minute about the process of getting a COA. Uh, so as Matt, Matt said it earlier, you have to prove to the FAA that you actually are a uh, government agency so that you can uh, operate as a public aircraft operator. Uh, once you do that, uh, that letter goes into the FAA legal review process. And once they approve it, They'll give you access to a system uh, called CAPS, which is what allows you as an agency to actually file for your COA. And there's essentially two different types of COAs that you can get. One's uh, called a blanket COA, uh, it's much quicker to get. And that blanket COA uh, kind of mirrors a lot of uh, what you get when you walk out of a uh, and with your Part 107 certificate. You can fly under that blanket COA in Class G airspace uh, anywhere in the country uh, up to 400 feet and um and then uh you have to keep a certain distance from airports uh, depending on if it's a towered airport or if it has an instrument approach procedure but that's all outlined in the COA. and the blanket codes are all the same that's why they say blanket they cannot be amended you cannot get waivers to them um if you needed to fly in some controlled airspace then you would get a jurisdictional COA. or if you needed to high fly higher than 400 feet on certain occasions uh, for certain reasons then you would uh get a jurisdictional COA. And that would allow you access to um, the controlled airspace. So B, C, uh, D, and E airspace. The other advantage to both COAs actually, um, this is an important distinction to understand, is that uh, when you compared to part one of seven, you go and take your part one of seven certificate and get your certificate. You walk out, you cannot fly at night. You're limited to daytime until you get a waiver for night. Uh, well, under under the uh, COAs that are issued uh, for public aircraft operators, you actually get night flight automatically included with that. You are required to have a visual observer, and then the other thing is you get a, a sort of a limited caveat uh, for flight over people. And they put in the the COAs something that says uh, you can fly over people uh, in situations where it's necessary to safeguard human life. And so that's a you know obviously something a decision that an agency would during the mission would need to make uh, while they're flying. And if that's something that they determine, that they need to fly over people uh, in order to uh, safeguard human life, then that's something that you can do uh, with, a, uh, with either COA, both the blanket or the jurisdictional COA.
0: Now, and so um, just to put a, a finer point on that too, there is a third type of COA uh, called the SGI, the Special Governmental Interest COA, um, do you want to explain to folks what the SGI is and how you would get something like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the SGI was um, uh, created, uh, we you, we used to call them uh, emergency COAs. And so you'd call the FAA if there was um, some emergency. Uh, let's, let's think of an example for this. You are, um, you're an agency who has a COA already for your jurisdiction, wherever you are. And uh, you've got a mutual aid agreement with someone else and they call you and they say, hey, we know you have a drone. Uh, We need you to come fly for us. And you look at the map and you determine that, oh, they're in class D airspace. And so that's a controlled airspace. It's uh, a towered airspace. And uh, your COA would not allow you to fly in there. So you go there and you call um, the systems operations support center uh, for the FAA. And you say, uh, this is so-and-so and we have COA Uh, But we're operating outside of our area in this area for uh, this type of emergency and you explain what's going on and you can only use it for emergencies, uh, true emergencies. And uh, typically they'll give you uh, like pretty close to instant. Sometimes it takes a few minutes um, authorization uh, to operate in there. So and this is an area where, um, you know, Matt and I, we, we talk about this a lot. Uh, you know where where uh, the FAA has uh, done really well to respond to public safety and to public agencies and to create processes that uh, really work for them. At first, it was a little bit clunky, and we kind of had to get through some of this stuff because uh, it was also new. And you know, um, I think that's understandable. But now uh, this is a pretty streamlined process, and we know a lot of agencies that have taken advantage of this and been able to use it, and uh, and has really helped out in situations where. Uh, you know, I think in the past, you know, they had some trouble uh, getting access there. So um, ultimately, it's been a great thing for public safety. And um, I definitely applaud the FAA for um, creating that process.
0: Yeah, and I can say from a couple of um, <clears throat> real world experiences, there was a, a small plane crash here in Atlanta. And one of the agencies that we work with asked for our help in getting an SGI because it was literally right off airport property. And I I, I, I mean, it was a, it was amazing how quickly we got approval to fly and we were literally at the airport. Um and so, you know, typically that wouldn't have uh, have been allowed under their traditional COA. Um, and so, yeah, they really, you know, sort of take it seriously. Respond to emergencies. They're available twenty four seven. And and as long as it is an actual emergency, and um, they they don't actually allow you to use it for training scenarios, um, which is interesting because you know obviously there's going to be training that you're going to do in some areas where you might need to request an emergency COA in an actual emergency that you can't in a training scenario. Um, but that's something that I think there's you know discussion ongoing about. Um, so I wanted to talk about um, you know we've sort of explained the basics of the COA, um, we've explained the basics of Part 107. Um, so there there one one specific point I want to make is that you can actually have both as an agency, um, and so uh, it's important to dist- you know to uh, distinguish between Part 107 as a certification and Part 107 as an operating framework. So Part 107 as an operating framework, we tend to tell people you know, is a little bit more limited. Um, obviously, you need waivers for all the specific things that you want to do. It's certainly doable, um, but that the, the blank or the COA actually gives you broader, uh, uh, you know, operating authority from the get-go. Um, so in a lot of cases, the COA is the preferred choice as far as the operating framework. But that doesn't mean that you can't go out and get the 107 certification because as we talked about, the 107, uh, or I should say, the COA allows you to self-certify your own operators. And a lot of departments just don't feel comfortable with that. So, the, you know, they're like, i'm not an aviation guy i don't you know how do i know what good training looks like or good certification Uh, so it allows you to go out and take that test and and you know have a federal certification that says i have met that standard that the faa put in place so you can possess a 107 certificate and that's a great credential to have um, and still operate under a coa but it's sort of a backstop to making sure that you're getting the knowledge that you need Um, we did get a question from the audience here so jennifer uh, yaksal who um, is both an attorney a municipal attorney and a Part 61 pilot, um, so a manned aircraft pilot. She said, can you explain a bit more about why the COA is really so much more responsibility or liability than Part 107? Uh, let's assume the agency is gonna have pilots get 107 and not self-certify. Um, she said, I understand that the agency is taking over the FAA's oversight, but in reality, doesn't the agency have to oversee their program regardless of whether it's operating uh, under COA or Part 107? Um, they have to oversee maintenance, safety, et cetera. Um, no matter what, they're subject to liability regardless of how they operate? Is it just that there's more liability in terms of FAA enforcement? Um, it's a great question, and it's one that we discuss a lot. I think that the, the short answer is uh, we don't know, um, and I hate to give that answer, but um, none of this has ever been tested in court, and so I think it's hard to say what would actually happen in a real-life scenario. Um, I think the difference is that, uh, and this is my opinion, the difference is that uh, part one of seven, you're sort of piecing together individual pilots to make a drone program, whereas under the COA, you're you're doing it from a department level, and that gives you a little bit more control over how your program is operated. Um, in effect, yes, you could do it that way under part one seven as well. Um, but we, as far as where liability gets assigned or what would actually happen, you know, if something went wrong, we we really don't know the answer to that. Would you agree with that, and,
1: Ben? Yeah, I would, and and I think it's really important to point out. Um, in our discussions with the FAA, the FAA does not use the term liability because that's something that's gonna get figured out in the courts. They use the term responsibility. And so the FAA says, if we're, we are turning over more responsibility to you, I assume that would translate into a certain amount of liability in the end, um, but you're exactly right. We just, we don't know.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I think the, you know, there's lots of um, folks at the FAA legal office that will give you, you know, their interpretation of what that means. Um, and certainly, we can make that connection for you, uh, Jennifer, if you're interested in hearing their their opinion of it. But it's it's uh, interpreting a, a congressional statute, and not there's no guidance document.
1: And and so you know, too, you you actually can get an interpretation from the FAA legal office. It takes some time, uh, but if you have a specific question about uh, any part of this, you can go to the FAA legal office, and they will give you a specific interpretation. And I'm happy. To, was was that Jennifer asking the yeah, question? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got some interpretation, I've got twelve interpretations um, that I recently received uh, that I'm happy to send along too. So.
0: Okay. Yeah. No. I think that's. I think that's super helpful. Um, yeah. And and this is part of the problem. And I think the FAA understands this as well. They're a little bit. Um, uh, their hands are a bit tied because this all comes from congressional regulation. But, um, you know, they're they're hesitant to say definitively, do this or do that. Um, and here's exactly why. And I think because, you know, this is still new and there's still a lot of uh, uh, sort of changing of the guidance as time goes on. And so, you know, Ben and I have seen over six years of doing this, um, you know, first they said, you know, should a fire department and a police department each get their own COAs or can they do one? And originally the guidance was, no, everybody should get their own in case something bad happens. Then the guidance became, well, actually, it's okay if they get the same one as long as they understand that they're allowing other people to fly under the same COA. And so, it's, it's hard because the, the guidance changes a lot. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons, you know, it's nice to work with an agent or a company like ours is because we're staying up on top of that stuff too.
1: And, and just to add on to that, Matt, sorry, just real quick, that I was actually talking to the FAA this morning and they echoed that sentiment. They're like, just be aware what we're talking about right now could change tomorrow. <laughs> and that's what we've seen for the right? Like, you know, one day it's, we think this, one day we think that. Right. Uh, you know, and that's just been the process of it, and trying to work within that.
0: And the more we innovate in the drone world, the more the guidance is going to change because we're doing stuff that we weren't doing six years ago, and we're asking for permissions we didn't have six years ago. So, um, I think you know, it's a it's a moving target. And uh, to the FAA's credit, uh, you know, they're they're responsible for the busiest airspace in the world, or I guess what was before coronavirus, uh, the busiest airspace in the world, and keeping it safe, and they've done a really good job of that. So I understand that. Th- that's the the lens that they're looking at all this through is. What impact is this gonna have on manned aviation and on the safety of people underneath uh, the airspace as well, too? So, um, so Jennifer, I hope that answered your question and certainly reach out to either one of us if, uh, if we can delve in further to that. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's really interesting to, to sort of look at some of the requests that are coming out now in the time of coronavirus. Uh, a lot of conversation being had about, um, can we fly beyond line of sight because we've got this new mission because of coronavirus. Um, you know, can we break the rules? Can we operate beyond what what the rules have been? And the FA has been very clear <clears throat> in the conversations that we've had with them, which is we're not waiving anything in a time of coronavirus. If you really have an immediate need, we will we will consider it, you know, on a sort of a more urgent basis, but the rules are the rules and we're going to stick with them until we have a reason to to deviate from them. Was Is that the sentiment that you've gotten, Ben, as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we delved into that in a, one of our past Couple of weeks ago or something. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Too, 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 anyone too. wants some kind of detail on that? Um, that's in, that's on our, our Facebook page.
0: Yeah, great. No, so uh, we got another question from Jeff Farley. He said, "Can a department get a COA and have an officer fly without Part 107?" Um, and the the answer is yes, absolutely. If you are uh, flying under a COA, um, you are allowed to self-certify. Now that said, you have to follow whatever your department set up as the training standard for that department. Uh, it does not need to be 107. It can be 107, um, and that's certainly an option. But it, it's not you're not required to fly uh, under 107.
1: Yeah, and just to kind of back that up. Just 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 know that Part 107 and uh, COA or public aircraft operations are two completely different regula- uh, regulatory frameworks. Although the the operating parameters of each might be similar to each other, they're totally different, and uh, an agency can have. Uh, pilots who fly under the COA and they can have pilots who are certified under their own individual part 107 certificates. They can have one or the other. They can have both. Just remember it's mission dependent. So if you only have a COA and you don't have part 107, you're very limited to those missions that are governmental function. Now, maybe that's all you need. You know, maybe you just, all you're using it for is very specific law enforcement or fire rescue purposes. And that's great. And that's all you need. So you're going to operate under the COA. Um, As soon as you step outside of that, uh, any type of mission that does not meet that specific governmental function, then uh, you would need a part 107 operator.
0: Yeah, and, and that's why a lot of departments are having, you know, we, we tell people get at least one person part 107 certified so you have that go-to um, person or, you know, if there's a citizen you trust or, a, you, know, a, you know, some sort of auxiliary person that you trust that has a part 107, they can be that person for you. Um, and in fact, they don't even have to be the ones manipulating the controls. They just have to be there overseeing. They're the remote pilot in command. Um, they don't have to actually fly the mission. But, you know, if you were asked to go get some, you know, video of a a COVID parade or whatever (laughs) that we're doing these days, uh, you know, that would actually qualify as a 107 mission and not as a public aircraft operation. Um, If you were flying that same parade for security and surveillance purposes, that would qualify as a public operation. And so you can see there's like, you know, it's it's sort of a gray area. It's a very fine line between what qualifies and what doesn't. And ultimately it's on you as the as the pilot to decide that, you know, you don't you don't call the FAA and go like, what do you think, Co- you know, COA mission or not? Um, it's up to you to decide that. Um, the real trick is that if something goes wrong, they're going to come in and go, how did you make that decision? What training did you have? What does your program look like?
1: Um, if, if, if you're ever confused, if you're like, oh, I'm not sure, is this COA? Is this part one of seven? I just do it under part 107. of
0: seven. Yeah, better to err on the side of the having the federal certification. Um, yeah. so you can get that determination after the fact. Um, so what? Another couple of things that these are just sort of random asides. But like operating under a COA, um, you're actually required to file a notam um, before your operation. Um, that's something you don't have to do under Part 107. Um, also, when you're flying at night under a COA, you're required to have a visual observer. That's also not something you're required to do under Part 107. Um, and so those are those are. Potential areas where 107 could actually be more beneficial um, than a COA, but of course you then have to have a night waiver um, and um, you know have those things in place.
1: And monthly reporting to you, Matt.
0: Monthly reporting as well. Yeah. So uh, the FAA requires you to submit monthly reports about the details of all the flights you did, um, and and send them information you know so they can kind of keep track of what's happening and who's doing what. Um, another thing I wanted to point out: a uh, couple of questions you know we get regularly. Um, it actually does not cost anything to file a COA. Um, so let's talk about the process a little bit for filing a COA. It doesn't cost anything. Um, you definitely can. It does cost something if you ask Skyfire to file it on your behalf. And what I tell people about that is like, it's just a question of your time and, you know, whether you want to do it yourself or not. Um, we certainly don't push people to uh, to hire us, but just like you would painting your house, you can either paint it yourself or you can hire somebody to do it. Um, and that's a determination you guys are going to have to make. Um, I will say it is a a fairly complicated process. Um, It's not difficult. It's just, there's a lot of steps and there's a lot of back and forth with the FA. Um, So hiring somebody to do it um, can help you shorten the the time that it will take you to get it. Uh, We've done like, I think north of 300 at this point. So we we know exactly what they're looking for and can do it more quickly. Um, But that said, actually filing it does not cost anything. Um, Taking the 107 test does cost 150 bucks roughly. Um, Each testing center sets their own price. Um, but let's talk about the, the process of actually uh, applying for a ACOA. Um, so talk about the PDL and how, how do you actually start the process?
1: Uh, yeah, so um, you get that PDL, submit it. Um, I, I, think we, I think I think talked about it this, uh, a little bit earlier, but uh, you submit that to the FAA legal office once your public declaration letter is done, they approve it, uh, they get you set up into the CAP system. And, uh, and then what you have to do inside of the CAP system is actually go through and you have to write a, an operational description and a program summary, and you have to talk about the aircraft that you're going to use, and you're going to have to put specs in there and then the location where you're going to fly. Um, and, uh, and and a few other things in there as far as kind of what the FAA wants to see is regarding um, what's on board the aircraft and sensors and those kinds of things. And um, and like Matt said, it's, it's not terribly... Um, Uh, it's not terribly complex. It's just, it takes a little bit to kind of gather all that information and figure out exactly what are they looking for here? What does the FAA want me to say? Um, Because again, this comes back to the responsibility on the agency. So the FAA doesn't put out templates of saying, well, this is what you should say for your operational description. They're saying you tell us what you need. What are you trying to do here? And then we'll, you know, we'll let you know if we think that's safe and uh, if we can approve that. So then you submit all that. Uh, And then depending on what type of your COA, what type of COA you're getting, if you're getting a blanket COA, a lot of times, I mean, we've seen those come back anywhere from within a day to up to a couple weeks, just kind of depends, I think, uh, how busy they are and and how full the queue is. Um, The jurisdictional has to go through a little bit more of a safety review, because typically when you're getting a jurisdictional COA, you're asking to operate inside of controlled airspace. And so what happens is they have to actually coordinate. Uh, between Washington and uh, whatever airspaces you're trying to fly in, whatever control towers you're using, so they'll they'll call them up and say, "All right, we want to create a procedure so that this agency can operate inside of um, uh, this uh, uh, controlled airspace."
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great. I appreciate you walking us through that. Um, we did get another question from our good buddy Chris Bachman. Uh, good to hear from you, Chris. Uh, hey, if, de- uh, if your fire department has a program where all pilots must be part 107, do you still need to identify continuing education and flight training requirements in the policy? Uh,
1: that's a great question. Um, I, I would say so. If there, if everyone's just 107, um, it's, it, there's no requirement outside of them maintaining their own uh, part 107 certificate. As a matter of safety and practice, I think it's a great idea to have some, some policies and procedures developed um, that speak to what your agency wants of them i would go up well above it because all you have to do to get your 107 renewals take another test two years later so you could just take your test and then not do any training or anything for 23 months and then you know that 23 months you're like oh i need to go respond to the Spire. and then you know you haven't flown in almost two years you know um so I, I think it would behoove any agency to make sure that they've got some procedures in place and uh, for recurrent training and and practice and uh, simulated missions and, and have a, have a, a developed, uh, kind of training curriculum for that.
0: Yeah. And then that goes along too, with the, there's other reasons to do it too. Like, you know, you have a maintenance schedule for your aircraft. You need to be flying it and recycling batteries at certain intervals. And the good way to do that is get, get some, you know, stick time, get people's hands on. Um, there's lots of great ways to structure, um, continued training. So, um, you, we've talked before about the NIST course, um, and using that as a training, uh, tool, and we will talk more about that at another, another time here, but, you know, mission specific training, you know, we're always offering training days and, you know, all kinds of demo days and stuff at conferences and, you know, so those are good opportunities to get everybody get, you know, hands on sticks and, and just, you know, keep yourself fresh because, you know, it's not natural to everybody to do this and, you know, it's easier for some than others. But, you know, just making sure that you're doing it regularly and and like you always say, you know, train like you play um you know pretend like you're going out to these calls and when you're actually asked to do it at night in the dark you know under stress the cheapest blood you know breathing down your neck uh that's not going to be the first time in six months you've touched the drone so i think there's there's lots of good reasons to do it even if it's not a requirement and the other thing too to underscore is that 107 actually doesn't require you to know anything about actually flying a drone um you have to understand you know airspace and weather and rules and and all those kinds of things but it doesn't actually ask you you know how would you fly this drone um so it's important to to make sure you're doing training on that front too
1: yeah and that that's a good point too and and i just want to point out matt and i are you know as we're both manned aviation pilots we're both part 61 pilots and uh we have to get what's called a flight review every 24 months and once we have that we're good for 24 months now to carry passengers there's some different currency requirements that we have to meet but if i just you know if i took my flight review and then waited 23 months to go fly an airplane i mean i'd be putting myself in that airplane and potentially people on the ground in danger uh, because i haven't you know so that's just the bare minimum that we're talking about there so i I think it's important to go uh, well above and beyond that
0: cool well uh look this is one of the most confusing topics that we talk about um regularly that's why we wanted to do this video this week because um when you guys talk to kyle and bruce on the you know the guys who are answering the phones and and getting your quotes together, you know, this is something that they have to explain constantly. So uh, we thought this is a good way to kind of break this down. But I, I think the bottom line is, you know, there's definitely a good reason to get your Part 107 certification. Um, there's good reasons to operate under a ACOA. Um, there's also departments that will be just fine operating under Part 107. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we always say or I always say uh, we don't charge you unless you buy something from us. So if you have questions about this and just want to pick our brains about it. Um, we're more than happy to talk to you guys. And then if you decide you want our help filing it, we, we can certainly um, we can certainly have that conversation as well too, but uh, we're here to answer all your questions. Uh, we have another question, uh, speaking of which from uh, another one from Jennifer here. So given the downsides of having to file a NOTAM each time you fly in monthly reporting, and given that it's not too difficult to get a night waiver, couldn't a department fly under part 107, of seven, get a night waiver, get airspace waivers. Um, and then the only thing you wouldn't be able to do is the ops over people. Uh, seems like that may make more sense than ACOA. Um, I think that sentiment is much truer now than it ever has been. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, for, for a long time, um, Part 107 waivers were taking forever, um, and they were not guaranteed. Um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, sort of, I don't want to say chaos, but, you know, it was sort of you, you felt like you submitted your waiver and it went into this black hole, and in the meantime, you couldn't do anything. Um, and so I think that, yeah, there, there are definitely departments um, that would be just fine operating under Part 107. Now with our current Part 107 waiver system. Um, there are definitely places where you've got really complex airspace. Um, Part 107 um, doesn't allow you to get waivers for uh, the zero grids automatically. So those are things you're going to have to file individual waivers for, and they may only be good for short periods of time. So, like for example, we've done we did the authorization for Atlanta uh, Police Department. They've got the busiest airport in the world in their jurisdiction. Um, for them to just operate under part 107 would be ridiculous. Um, It's just not doable uh, in a way that makes sense. But if all you've got is one non-towered airport or uh, one smaller, you know, class D airport, yeah, there's certainly a case to be made for that.
1: Yeah. And that you you look at like some of the busier airspaces in the country, like we have a bunch of clients up in the kind of the Bay Area and a lot of them need jurisdictional COAs uh, to be able to operate because just trying to get all those waivers and Uh, manage it. And it's just, um, it it can be a real pain. So, um, and, and this is where the FAA, I think really has come full circle. I think that they're really going like, you know what? Yeah. Agencies can do most of their missions under part One Hundred Seven, And that's a little bit of a change, you know, that, that we've seen. So it really, again, it just, it kind of comes down to the agency and the airspace and um, you know, kind of where, where it's located.
0: Yeah. And I will say though, to your specific question, Jennifer, it's actually very easy to file a NOTAM now. It didn't used to be, um, you, now you can just put in an address uh, and you used to have to like calculate distances from VORs and all that fun stuff. Uh, now you just type in an address on a website and it's actually very easy to do.
1: Yeah, it takes about 20 seconds once you practice it a couple times.
0: Yeah, so that, that, that should not be an impediment, but there may be other reasons why 107 will work just fine for you. Um, so just to, to mention that specifically. So um, I don't see any oh, more questions. Oh, yeah, go just, for it.
1: I just wanted to add on to that. So under this is important. Under the COAs, um, it does. There is a caveat there for um, for first responders in um, urgent situations uh, where you actually they say that the notum requirement can be waived um, if it's if filing the notum would get in the way of your response. So if there's an yeah. emergency and you just have to go, then they're like, it's okay. You don't have to worry about the notum. Okay.
0: Yeah, they're not they're not trying to be an impediment. So. Um, well, cool. I think, uh, we don't, I don't see any more questions in the queue. So as I said, if you guys need uh, advice on any of this stuff, happy to walk you through it, uh, offline. Um, if you go to our website, skyfireconsulting.com, there's a contact info there and you can get in touch with us. Uh, drop us a note here on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, I don't think we're on TikTok yet, but, uh, (laughs) maybe one of these days, uh, we can't keep up with it all. We're too old guys now. So, um, but thank you guys so much for for watching and for the great questions. We always love interacting with people. This is why we do this um, to help out. So uh, thank you again to you know all the first responders uh, and public health workers who are out there keeping us all safe, um, so we can we can all continue to uh, to to survive through all this. And um, so we really appreciate you guys for what you do, and and uh, we hope we can help you keep doing it. So thanks again, everybody. We'll sign off for today, and uh, we'll see you next week to uh, release some. Very exciting new product information that uh, we're we're excited to talk about. So, uh, until then, we'll we'll talk to you later. See ya.